You're listening to episode 400 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Um, is this thing working? I, this is, feels like it's been like forever for that we've been doing this. I think it's been about a month. It's my fault, though. I've been out of pocket, basically. Yeah, he decided to flee the universe and, and, and the internet and go out and commune with the desert. That's right, where it's hot, dry, and dusty. Man, I, I just really wasn't prepared for the amount of dust. But in any event, I'm back, at least for a while. And it, this is a milestone episode, David, number 400. Wow. Yeah, I thought we were going to just sort of let that go by. But yeah, I, considering this was something we really weren't expecting to become so long, you know. And, and ironically, it's a week away from our 700th episode from the other on the other show. Yes, right. It, it's interesting that, you know, that, boy, we, we, we've been doing this a long time. Maybe too long, but... Uh... <laughs> But here we go. We're here. We have a lot of news to talk about this uh, this episode. Yeah, we got a month's worth to catch up with, like creating a UAV and eVertol ecosystem, a hypersonic UAV project in Australia, how to rickroll a crowd with 300 drones, the switchblade drone in Ukraine, the outlook for agricultural drones, a delivery service in Texas, and drones in export. Export laws. This is this is going to be one of my f- co-hosts' favorite topics. <laughs> it's not as quite as good as as fuel cells, but he does like export law. Yeah, it's not as exciting as fuel cells, but yep, we have a story about that. So let's get started. So first story is Drawn Ick CEO Jan Eric Pultz on creating a UAV and eVertol ecosystem. This was from DroneLife.com. Dronik is a German company that provides hardware and software solutions for UAS traffic management. We've talked about them in the past, or UTM. So they are looking to develop an ecosystem between eVertols and UASs. They've worked with Deutsche Telekom and DFS, which is the air navigation service provider in Germany, on this research project. But uh, we have some comments here from the CEO about some of the, well, some of the challenges, some of the issues. And it's kind of what you'd expect. Uh, Putza says that standards and regulations are lagging. Uh, his uh, comment is, we have a highly regulated air environment in a highly unregulated drone world. We're trying to come together. Uh, another point that he makes is that the drone economy innovates by using trial and error, largely, but manned aviation doesn't work that way. So we, the unmanned sector population, population uh, cannot make manned aviation insecure. We can't bring that in. And it can be hard to combine uh, those approaches. He has some other comments as well. Yeah, that the drone industry and unmanned aviation can learn from each other, which we've sort of had started to see. And that uh, basically to develop this environment, you start at smaller airports, training and building data, and then growing into... Um, larger airports and developing a larger deconflicted issues. 
the U space system is in test in Germany, which is their system, and other EU states are behind. Um, they won't meet the January 2023 U space deadline. So you want to read more about U space, Max? Where where would they find that out? Yeah, we have a couple of links in the show notes. Uh, one is the U space deadline is January 2023. What has to happen before that? A conversation with ANRA's Amit Ganjo, and um, that uh, is along with another item that we'll have a link to. France chooses eight UTM providers to create a best breed integrated solution U space together. One of the interesting things, David, that is mentioned in this piece is that Putza is also president of something called the Alliance for New Mobility Europe, or AME. This is a brand new organization. I think uh, it was announced about the last episode that we put out, about a month ago, I think. And they're looking to uh, bring together stakeholders uh, in the European UAV and EVTOL market. Their goal is to drive standardization and integration. On their website, which we'll have a link to in the show notes, it says uh, we are an alliance for all aerial mobility stakeholders in Europe, suppliers and users, private and public, with a focus on integrating UAVs and VTOLs into aviation and other ecosystems. So if you're part of that uh, market, part of that industry in Europe, you may want to check out the Alliance for New Mobility Europe. And if you're in other regions of the world, you might want to take a look at it anyway to see if there's uh, some things you can learn or apply in your region. So I think we'll be watching that. Yeah, a good model, I think. We've talked about the the eVertal and UAS in parallel, and we talk about both on the show. They probably are the easiest ecosystem to mesh together, you know, with, they have similar concepts, whereas, you know, including main deviation. So if you can get those to work together, you might be better off getting, then integrating in with the manned airspace. Or you can go really, really, really fast, and then no one worries about you. Really fast. This is from compositesworld.com. Australian hypersonic UAV project awarded 2.9 million um, Australian dollars in federal funding. Uh, the project partners are developing the DART CMP airframe. So what's the DART? It's a vehicle that's hydrogen powered, um, makes use of extensive use of composites, can travel at speeds up to Mach 12, and the project will begin on July 2022. So it the project's starting, not necessarily first flight by 2022. You're right, exactly. And there are a number of partners involved in this. Hypersonics Launch Systems, the University of Southern Queensland, the LSM Advanced Composites, and Romar Engineering. Those are all Australian companies. And power plant for, uh, for this is the Spartan scramjet engine, which has uh, been developed by Hypersonics, which, as David mentioned, is is hydrogen-fueled. It's also made from CMC, ceramic matrix composites, or it utilizes those uh, to a large extent. And the, the idea here, one of the ideas here, is that this is a fully reusable engine. Sometimes scramjet engines are 
basically uh, you know one shot kind of deals, uh, but this is designed to be uh, fully reusable. And David, there's really two darts: the CMP that we've been talking about here, but it's also based on an earlier dart. The DART AE, which stood for additive engineering, and it's a 3D printed out of high temperature alloys. It's amazing how 3D printing has come along. And the AE DART is planned for launch next year. Um, the ceramic matrix composites for the DART CMP will be developed and tested by the University of Southern Queensland. And the CMP should be available in mid-2025. So basically, there's two parallel programs um, in this program, and one is growing out of the other. So, Max, what makes a scramjet a scramjet? Well, you have a ramjet and you have a scramjet. <laughs> but uh, basically, these engines, they don't have any moving parts or not anything significantly moving. And basically, you've got air rushing in through the inlet uh, with such high speeds that it compresses itself. So you don't have a compressor uh, like you would with a conventional jet engine or turbofan engine. It's just the, the velocity of the incoming air. You introduce fuel and ignite it, and there's your thrust. So it's an incredibly simple concept, uh, but very difficult to actually produce because of the the speeds, the temperatures, and so forth. Uh, the difference between a ramjet and a scramjet is in a scramjet, the, the S stands for supersonic. So the airflow is actually supersonic into the engine. Uh, using CMCs, the ceramic matrix composites, uh, is a way to address some of the heat issues and things like that that are, um, that are caused or created when an engine like this is operating. So, uh, you know, very exciting um, scramjets uh, are kind of appearing in other contexts, military and otherwise. But here we see one being applied to this uh, unmanned aircraft. You know, it's funny, Max, because ramjet and the scramjet probably are the mechanically the simplest form of an engine, but it's the most also the most difficult. It's kind of the oxymoron of engines. Yes. You gotta you gotta figure out a way of dealing with all that heat and all that pressure, but there's little to no moving parts and once it gets started, away you go. It's kind of like a rocket, only an air breathing one. Yeah. Okay, the next one. We weren't around for April Fools, but this was a great story. This is from the DallasObserver.com. 300 drones formed a QR code that rickrolled Dallas on April Fool's Day. I don't know what was more impressive, that somebody went to this trouble for as an April Fool's joke or the fact that 300 drones can make a QR code and that that QR code could be read by smartphones. Yeah. You know, there There's a lot of things going on with this story that I thought was technologically impressive. And I even I even took my phone and uh, tried to read the QR code, the drones, the image that they were making in the uh, in the photo that's in the article, even though it's not, you know, completely parallel to the to the article. It's kind of at an oblique angle. But my QR code reader picked it right up, and the next thing I knew, I was <laughs> watching Rick Astley's uh, "Never Gonna Give You Up" video. Uh, on on YouTube, which is where the QR code pointed. So, I, I agree. It, it it's kind of a uh, 
uh, a fun thing. It's an interesting thing. The lights on a, an array of drones can create a readable QR code in the sky. You're going to see that used a lot, I have the feeling. It definitely was an interesting way to test the technology. And we've all been Rickrolled sooner or later, you know. Poor Rick Astley has, you know, become a become a joke on the internet. But um, yeah, it was it, it is kind of impressive that you the technology's there, and I have been fond of QR codes from when they first came out when I was working as a marketer, and then they died off, and everybody said, "Well, that was a dead technology." And then we had COVID nineteen, you know, and they came back, and I think now it's an accepted technology so people are much more comfortable with it and understand them and the technology's gotten simpler too i mean basically you just point your phone whereas you used to have to have a qr code reader and all of the other stuff so it's it's definitely an interesting thing but making having a drone make one in the sky yeah we're going to see that more often i think so but if you're a bad guy you probably don't want to see the next uas coming in at you, which is the switchblade. And this is a video. A look at the drone the U.S. is sending to Ukraine. The air environment switchblade, um, sometimes called the Kamikaze, was introduced back in 2011 and developed for U.S. Special Forces in Afghanistan. It is a UAS designed to be able to call in an airstrike without actually having an aircraft and is a man-portable UAS. And there's two of them. There's the Switchblade 300 and the Switchblade 600. The 300 is uh, is fairly small. Uh, you carry it in a backpack. It's just over half a meter long, weighs less than three kilos, kilos rather, sorry. Um, it's sort of instantly deployable with a... 10-kilometer range in a 15-minute loitering time, and it's designed to attack personnel and light vehicles. But then there's the Switchblade 600, which is still man-portable and more recent, unveiled in 2020. It's a little bit bigger. We've seen what happens when the Switchblade 600 meets an armored vehicle. It's pretty devastating. Um, it takes 10 minutes to set up. And um, on the ground, it kind of looks like a mortar. Both of these sort of do look like a mortar. It's fired out as a projectile. Then the the wings, the tail fin, and the tail planes um, all fold out. And a propeller deploys in the back. Um, the 600 can fly 40 kilometers in 20 minutes and loiter for another 20 minutes. So you 80 kilometers total range and it's got a javelin anti-armor warhead so it does some nasty damage to um heavily armed vehicles like tanks or armored personnel carriers whereas the um the 300 is designed for things like jeeps or um small vehicles or personnel and they cost about six thousand dollars a piece so it's a one-shot, one-done thing, but um, the United States has agreed to send them to Ukraine to be used, and it's a very potent weapon system that we're providing our Ukrainian allies. And on that, let's move on to other things. Global agriculture drones market forecasts to 2026. 
exemptions provided by the UA, UA, the UASFAA, the USFAA, use of agricultural drones and increasing investments. This is from finance.yahoo.com and the researchandmaterials.com is offering the agricultural drone market forecast from 2021 to 2026 report. This came out in December of last year. Um, agricultural drone market is expected to grow at a CAGR of 32.49. Now, wouldn't our old friend be very happy that I remembered it was a CAGR? Yeah. yeah. Compound annual growth rate, CAGR. In this uh, in this forecast, they expected the um, the market to reach $7 billion U.S. by 2026. And that compares to the market in 2029, of just under one billion dollars. Twenty nineteen. Uh, twenty nineteen. What did I say? Twenty twenty nine. Twenty twenty nine. Oh my gosh. The agricultural uh, drone market, as they uh, uh, define it for this study, includes things like the controllers, the frames, the camera systems, the propulsion systems, batteries, and navigation systems. So it's kind of a uh, an inclusive definition for the uh, agricultural drone market. And as we've talked about before, these agricultural drones are mainly used for things like uh, monitoring crops and yields and conditions, uh, looking at uh, irrigation issues, uh, pest infestations, and so forth. But in this study, they found a number of factors that are driving this uh, really large growth. Drones use in agriculture is growing, needless to say, but um, it's reliable and a powerful tool. So the technology is keeping pace and the um, ease of that technology is being able to be implemented. Um, more buyers are entering the market. Again, that's because of the ease in which people can access this technology. Small businesses are investing in drones. As more people invest, they become more affordable. You know, the price goes down. Farmers are less wary of investing in the technology, and agriculture is welcome the technology with open arms. I think the latter two are really important. Agriculture was one of the first early adopters, and I think that has spurred on the um, less anxiousness or um, you know more confidence in what the systems can provide. Farmers are very deliberate in their investing because they they have. Farming is not necessarily a high profit margin um, thing. So you really have to watch. And for, for small farmers, you have to watch each penny and dime. So investing in the technology, you need to make sure that it's going to pay you back or benefit you. And the study segmented the market into three groups, fixed wing, multi-rotor, and hybrid. And we note that the fixed wing segment is is growing at a greater rate than the others, which I think we'd kind of expect to see that. Also, the uh, North American and Asia-Pacific regions are, are really showing the, the most robust growth. And then it, there's also the comment that uh, one of the major reasons for the growth in agricultural drones is the exemptions provided by the FAA, that being the small UAS rule rule. 107 for the use of agricultural drones. And that's really had a positive impact on uh, the use of uh, drones. But they also mentioned a few things, a few restraints, a few things that are kind of holding things back. 
And if you ever sound like we sound like a recording, all of these articles pretty much say the same thing, which is standardization of communication protocols used to interfere interferes with precision agriculture. So basically standards. And this this is also timely, which is production halts due to COVID. So again, another industry that's affected by supply chain issues. And that really came to uh, to light. Is, is you mentioned, David, this report was issued in December 2021. You you can get a PDF version of this for $3,950, that being for a single user license. But they've just published another study, the revised study. This is the Agriculture Drone Markets Growth Trends COVID-19 Impact and Forecasts 2022 to 2027. The first one was 2021 to 2026. So we've, we've slid a year here. In, in just a few months. And in this newer report, the growth rate is down significantly, uh, Kager of 7.1% uh, compared to the uh, over 32% that was previously envisioned or forecasted. And they credit the impact of, uh, of COVID largely for this sort of scaled back growth. They noted that the pandemic has affected the morale of farmers around the world. Um, We've seen slumps in food crop prices. This has dropped the expectation of farmers for using agricultural drones. We see the uh, transportation systems affected, the lack of incomes being generated. So uh, times have gotten a lot tougher for the farming community and this has uh, impacted the, the the growth rate of uh, using drones in the agricultural context. So I thought that was pretty interesting to see how much a forecast could change. In one quarter. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So um, let's talk about delivery. Um, this was from Spectrum Local News. More drone delivery services take flight in North Texas. The drone food delivery service Flytrex has started in Granbury, Texas. So there is this app, the Flytrex app. You can order from several restaurants via this app. So there are a number of several restaurants that have made an arrangement to, you know, to, to work with Flytrex to provide this service. So if you go into the Flytrex app, you can select items from those particular restaurants. And then the drone comes out, delivers it to your yard, drops down a I was going to say a box, but in the video that I've seen, it's more like a uh, like a nylon bag kind of a uh, kind of a thing on a line on a tether. The drones are flown by licensed drone pilots, and the Flytrex drones are custom drones. And uh, this uh, Granbury, Texas, is in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Uh, I guess, and Flytrex is hoping that they can expand to some other communities in that area. Basically, the Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, Flytrex um, also operates three North Carolina locations, Holly Springs, Rayford, and Fayetteville. And Wing just announced that they're ready to deliver pharmacy items also in Texas, first aid kits and ice cream in two metro communities. (sighs) Ice cream in Texas being flown by a drone. <laughs> yeah, um, oh, uh, better bring the ice packs. Yeah, what's wrong with this picture? 
and of course, other delivery areas in the suburbs there. So drone delivery is starting and pharmacy and food naturally are, are the easiest things to do. Um, but given my co-host's experience in Texas, I think he would agree that ice cream's probably a dubious choice. It was hot when I was there, mid-90s down in the desert. I mean, ice cream is what I really wanted, but <laughs> but if it was placed in, you know, in a package attached to a drone 10 minutes prior to that, there wouldn't be much left, I think, by the time it got to me. And, of course, we've got a video of the week or one of the videos that's um, on our website. So of the Flytrack Sky Delivery and in Texas. So check that out. And you can do that by going to the UAVdigest.com backslash 400. So drones grow more sophisticated. Export rules still stuck in the 1980s, experts say. This was from AirForceMagazine.com. In 1987, missile technology control regime puts unmanned systems in the same category as missiles. So basically, Max, you can't sell them overseas, huh? That sort of thing is um, managed by the U.S. State Department, and there have been a number of attempts to to sell unmanned systems outside the U.S., but the State, uh, the state Department has, in, in many cases, killed those proposed military foreign sales. Now, just because they can't come from the United States doesn't mean that others can't obtain them from someplace else. Drones are becoming, obviously, very uh, pervasive. It notes here that over 95 countries operate remotely piloted aircraft. But if you want those and you can't get them from the United States, then you're going to get them from someplace else, maybe China. The result of a recent paper from the Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Studies Discuss the issues. Building alliances and competing with China, the imperative for UAV export reforms. Exports advance U.S. security and strengthen partnerships and encourage greater burden sharing. China and others are exploiting the vacuum created by restrictive export policies. RPAs are remotely piloted aircrafts because this is an Air Force magazine and not U- they won't use UAS should be removed from the missile technology control regime and be defined as aircraft and treated the same way. So what do you think, Max? Are they missiles or are they aircraft? I think they're aircraft. It certainly seems like a, a category that d- describes what they are more, more accurately. Um, obviously, aircraft for military applications also have certain export control requirements but they're not as <laughs> restrictive yeah as as missiles are so because of the downsides to the United States of not being able to sell these to the world markets and the world markets going out and buying them from other people it seems like it would make sense to to do this this paper, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, of course, uh, but it uses RPA, remotely piloted aircraft, instead of drone. And there's a little uh, sort of footnote in there that I, I just thought it was kind of interesting. It, it says the term drone is commonly re- used to refer to remotely piloted aircraft. This term, however, they say, perpetuates misnomers about how RPA are operated. This paper specifically avoids using drone in order to emphasize the robust and active role of humans in managing and controlling these systems. 
RPA, although uninhabited, require pilots and sensor operators to fly and conduct mission tasks, just as a manned aircraft does. In fact, RPA have more people closely involved in the real-time mission execution than manned strike aircraft. So uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting that uh, the reasons for avoiding the, the term drone. Yeah, the Air Force doesn't want to admit they fly drones. <laughs> but, uh, or more to the point, the term drone, as far as the Air Force is concerned, involves um, full-scale aerial targets or FSATs. You shoot down drones. You, you fly remotely piloted aircraft is the United States Air Force logic. But again, remotely piloted aircraft is probably a better term than unmanned aircraft or uncrewed aircraft or whatever we want to choose to use it to be. I mean, it is a remotely piloted aircraft, so it is probably the most accurate term. Yeah if not the most widely used one. So we wanted to mention, um, coming up, we have the Commercial UAV Expo. This is uh, September 6th through 8th, 2022, in Las Vegas. We just wanted to mention that the Commercial UAV Expo is, of course, a leading trade show and conference. It focuses on the integration and operation of Commercial UAS. They have more exhibitors than any other commercial drone event. And, of course, they cover a lot of industries, construction, drone delivery, energy and utilities, forestry and agriculture, infrastructure and transportation, mining and aggregates, just about everything, public safety, emergency services, security, surveying and mapping. Now, the expo was launched in 2015. It's an international event. And you'll find there educational opportunities, Amazing networking, more exhibits, as I mentioned, than any other commercial drone event. So it really is a must-attend event if if you want to keep up with the newest technology and developments. So, again, it's coming up September 6th through 8th in Las Vegas. For more information, we have a banner on our website at the UAV Digest. You can click on that. That will take you to the event website where you can learn more. And I understand the uh, the hashtag for this event is Expo UAV. So as you uh, tweet and uh, talk about it online, you can use that hashtag. So I guess that'll wrap this up, Max, for um, this week's episode. And it will not be another month before we record again, I promise, folks. Oh, it should be one week, I hope. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. And for sticking with us, of course, if uh, if you're subscribed to the podcast and whichever podcast app you use, that'll ensure that you always have access to the latest issue. We're at the UAVdigest.com, and our show notes are there for each and every episode where we have all of the the stories we talk about, the the organizations we talk about, and the videos that we usually have each week. And, of course, you can network with us on our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email at um, the geeks at airplanegeeks.com. It's the other one. Well, that will work. At, at info. Feedback. No, feedback. Oh, boy, it's been a long time. How quick they forget. Uh, yeah, how quickly. Um, and you can reach us at feedback at the uavdigest.com. Just send us an inv- and we'll send you an invite. Um, and of course, anywhere on social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn for both Max and I, and 
all of the other universe out there that has hashtags, et cetera, et cetera, so on. So with that, I'm going to say see you next week. This is David. And this is Max. Thanks for listening.